You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You know, when we talk about the fact that you you can hear um, the tonal qualities of the, tr- the trust trait, personality trait, um, isn't that amazing how advanced we are as human beings? We really are fine-tuned machines. And these machines that we all end up uh, playing and, and, and somehow we all are a part of the same culture where we can pick up those traits together. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. And to think that uh, – remember, it was, it was a, another trait that we've designed. We've kind of grown in order to be more social animals. Right. I mean, we we've grown and and developed ourselves um, into this ability to read the tonal quality of somebody and know if we trust their modulation or not. And uh, also we can see if we trust their dominance or not and if we can trust their competency or not. So if that doesn't tell you that we are born to be connected social beings, I don't I don't know what would. We are uniquely um, developed and, and prepared to be with people. We have um, – uh, we've learned from rhesus monkeys and other uh, research that's been done that we have certain abilities to pick up on, um, on the ability to read people's uh, nonverbal uh, affect and, and emotional affect. We have the ability to actually have mirror neurons where – if I'm watching somebody in pain and my brain is uh, actually watching somebody that's that's sad, like, for example, the shootings in Florida or any of the shootings uh, that we and you're watching and you're feeling very empathetic and very caring toward another, we could go into your brain and we would notice that you are in the brain center or the part of your brain that would actually relate to the human emotion and the feelings and that you are actually mirroring the feelings of other people. We've learned that from studies with monkeys and other um, and other primates, and and even we all know that for some odd reason we're fine until someone else starts crying. And once someone starts crying that we really love and we care about, for some reason our emotion starts to kick in and we start to cry. What that tells you again is you're wired to connect, and we can try to pretend like we're not. We can try to outthink it. We can pretend like we don't care, but the reality is we care. And we've got to figure out a way, I believe, to start uh, not just hoping that we can somehow have a shortcut to trusting someone and creating trustworthiness, but maybe what we need to create really more than anything is more of an ability to actually grow trust with other people. So think about it in your life, in your relationships. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? There is uh, there's a great book out, and he's been on the show many times, uh, two or three times actually. Stephen M. R. Covey, where we've talked about the speed of trust, and trust uh, to Stephen Covey and Stephen M. R. Covey was two things always: character, which means you, you have the integrity and the character to do what you say you're going to do. You really just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game, and we tend to trust people that have that. But you also have to have the competency. You have to know what on earth you're doing. It's not enough to trust somebody that's just really nice. They also have to bring competency. So think about that with the people around you in your life. 
Are you trustworthy to your kids? Do you know how to be their friend? Do you know how to connect to them? Some of us as parents, we just don't know how to do it. We don't know how to relate to our children. Some of us, it's, it's a character issue. We don't have the integrity, the character to do it. Some of us, we don't necessarily have the competency to do it. We don't know how to relate. The benefit of all of this, though, is that we can learn this. These are skills. These are tools that we can truly learn and we, we can grow. And I'm going to suggest that if we had a choice for th- something we should probably try to improve in our relationships, if you want more trust in your relationship, I would suggest you forge more character. Use your relationship to forge more character. And I'm going to give you a few steps, a few ways to do that in today's Coaching Corner. Number one way to exercise your character in your relationship is to be more wholehearted. Put your entire heart into your relationship again. Now, I get it. It's scary. What if I put it in there and then my wife just gets on Facebook and ignores me? That's scary, right? Then you'll just be rejected. So what a lot of us do is because we're, we don't dare put our whole heart into re, in our relationship because we're so afraid of rejection. So we then have a half-hearted relationship. And if we have a half-hearted relationship, predict the outcome. That's half the benefit, half the intimacy, half the closeness, half the communication, half the connection, half, half of the truth. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Brene Brown has a great quote that says, We spend far, um, we spend enormous energy trying to dodge vulnerability when it would take far less effort to face it straight on. One of the things that may keep us half hearted in our relationship is we're just too vulnerable. We don't want to be let down. And one of the rules I suggest, and I I just did this in a date night. that's basically talking about how to grow a a healthier relationship, higher love, I called it, um, is that we've got to learn to burn our ships. Like uh, Cortez, when he came to conquer, he – when they pulled up, they, they, they left the ships and they, they didn't just leave them so they could hurry and run back and, and use them as an exit strategy. Cortez asked that they burn the ship or make them inoperable. So they really took the ships apart. They either took them apart so they couldn't float or they burnt them. And uh, that made it so there was no quick exit strategy from this place. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't just hope to not be fully invested. They had to go win the war. And why that might be important in our relationships is if we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. One of them might simply be the fact that I can constantly blame my spouse for our problems and I'm always looking for, for you know, um, uh, they call it shopping alternatives is what we call it in our relationships. Another thing we can do to, to increase the character in our relationship is loosen your grip. Whenever I feel like I'm too vulnerable to risk anything new, I might try to control everyone around me. And as I try to control them, I might demand more perfection from people. I might try to get my safety and my security, not from my ability to respond to certain situations, but instead I try to get it by making everyone else around me play up a certain role. I want everyone around me to be a better spouse, to be a better child, to not surprise me, to be highly predictable for me. And so I start controlling everyone. I might even demand perfection from everyone. Brene Brown has a great quote that says, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun. 
When I demand perfectionism from everyone around me, shame is going to go up because what I'm going to do is make everybody feel bad for not making me feel safer. The fastest way to handle uh, life is not to make everyone else around you be more predictable for your sake, but instead learn to loosen your own grip and handle your own insecurities and work on it. Another great way to work on it is to actually appreciate the gift you've been given. This is one of my favorite learnings I think I've had in the last, I don't know, two or three months is um, a concept given by C.S. Lewis that talks about we all have given gifts. We have things that we've been given that are beautiful gifts that are really awesome uh, for ourselves and our lives. And then we have what are called the expected gifts. The expected gifts are the things we've always expected to have happen to us. It might be that you've expected that you would get married and be married by now. But the given gift you've got instead isn't marriage. It just might be a really great friend network that, uh, that is very supportive and strong. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Um, and uh, C.S. Lewis talks about an example of imagine that you are in a forest and you go looking for food. When the minute you're looking for food, you immediately have an expectation of what kind of food you you want to find, right? And so you come across some um, – let's say you're looking for berries, but you come across the mushroom and you don't want the mushroom because you were looking for berries. That's what you expected to get. But if you come across the mushroom, the mushroom is still a gift. It's still food and it would still be very valuable for you, but it's not what you expected and so you don't quite like it. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. We might keep walking through the forest and come across other leaves that might be edible, or we might come across you know, other vegetables that are there, roots or whatever, and it's not what we wanted. We were still looking for red berries. I need red berries. And if we go through life and we're constantly overlooking the gifts that are given to us, the jobs that you do have, the kids that you have, the trials that you have, then um, you might actually be able to actually enjoy the things that are given. So one of the pieces of advice is start to identify your great blessings that you've already been handed and start appreciating them and do what you can with the given gift. Ah, Start there, for example. Um, One of the great quotes by C.S. Lewis says, the truth is, of course, that one, what one regards as interruptions are precisely one's life. What a lot of us are frustrated by in this world because it's interrupting our life is what life is about, right? The, a sickness, an illness, a problem, a child that's disruptive. Whatever it is, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. So, There are some basic principles, I think, for all of us. Appreciate the gifts that you actually have been given. Loosen your grip a little bit more and be wholehearted about your relationships in your life. If you do those things, you're going to forge more character. And when we are working with one another and forging character, it's amazing what we become. We all become a little more trustworthy, which is the goal, I think, of of our lives as well. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You and your spouse, do you, do you share a lot of fun activities together? Do you have a lot of hobbies, toys, and leisure time where you two connect? Or do you end up 
tuning out each other and turning away from each other during those times. I wanted to uh, continue a discussion about what are some things we can do to make sure that we actually share hobbies and, and have some some more fun activities together that bring us together. Uh, one of the things that I, I found, a lot of the clients I work with, they might – one of the partners may have a hobby that the other doesn't participate in and it seems like that hobby ends up dividing them and that division makes it so they never seem like they can do anything. One might be you know, a cyclist and so they're always out cycling and doing their 100-mile uh, cycle trips every weekend. So one of the rules I teach is that we need to energize what you can do together, not what you can't. Energy at times is scarce, so protect it, right? And uh, do some things that – and at least identify what you do like doing. Start spending a little more time in your life, in your conversations, talking about what you do like to do together, what does work. If you like going out to dinner, then make that – an actual hobby. Become foodies. Get into the food. You know, get into it, but do it as something that we can do together instead of obsessing about the one thing your partner does that they do without you. If your partner goes hunting, you can obsess till you die about the fact that that's all he likes to do. I lose him all October as he goes hunting. But the reality is there also are another 11 months that you do a lot of other things. So start building uh, a really strong list of stuff that you do like to do together, um, things that are positive. Uh, find out, uh, you know, you, you may not go hunting with him, but you might go up to the camp where they hunt and you might go, you know, have a fun time hanging out with a bunch of people up there. It might be that you don't like necessarily hunting, but you like being outdoors, And it might not be that you even like being outdoors, but you like the memories of family gathering and, and, you know, getting your family ready to to send out to go go do some of these activities. Another thing you could do is start stretching your marriage by trying new things together. There is some pretty interesting research about the fact that if I do something crazy and energetic, if I jump uh, off with a bungee cord off of a bridge and I do that with my spouse, that's going to create some pretty amazing new chemistry for me, but my body will actually attribute it to the people I'm with. And so that is a simple way to bond myself a little bit closer to others is by trying some new things. A lot of us are so rigid in our minds about what we will do and what we won't do that we don't try something new. We don't we don't engage in other activities. Try something. I remember trying to talk some friends into trying sushi, and now I can't get them to stop eating sushi. Every time we go out with them, all they want is sushi. But something as simple as that could be a, a really interesting new thing that you end up growing together. Remember, too, that you don't need to like something to do it. Uh, a lot of us are in this idea that, you know, life is short, so we need to do exactly what we like to do. But sometimes uh, I like doing things just because the people I'm with like doing it. I may not even participate, but I'll go along and um, I can I can thoroughly enjoy sitting there watching my granddaughter look at a llama for the 50th time. And I'm good with it. Let's just do that. So remember, sometimes it might even enhance your your ability to get close to somebody simply because we are doing something just simply for them. A lot of the hardest things in the world, like going to school, eating healthy food sometimes, exercising, practicing piano or whatever, taking your medicine, it's hard. But we do it because it's good for us. And also, by the way, once you start doing something consistently enough – 
Whether you like it or not, you usually become pretty good at it. Another thing is to find the joy in the being of the activity, not the doing. There is a lot of joy in being together, being supportive, being happy, being selfless, being unified. And a lot of those things are more valuable to us in the end than the doing of an activity. So remember that just being a human being is our goal, right? We want to be being um, involved, being active, being together instead of just human doings that are out there doing stuff day in and day out. So remember, basic stuff. Find the joy in the being, not the doing. Remember, you don't need to like it to do it. Uh, Try some new things together. Stretch your marriage a little bit by doing something different and energize what you can do together, not just what you can't. We will continue learning together, folks. That's why we do the show, to help all of us become and be the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you know, I've talked about it a lot on the show, the difference between introvert and extrovert. I personally, many would think I'm an extrovert, uh, but I'm not. I feel like I'm more of an introvert. I love to be alone, and I actually get energy. I get ideas. I get creativity. A lot of it when I'm alone. I I do enjoy people. I'm not antisocial. I don't hate people. I don't think most introverts do. It's just... We, we have, we're different. So, you know, if you or a loved one is an introvert, listen up. If you are the introvert, listen up. Um, we're going to be talking about, about introversion and how we learn to deal in a world that tends to be fairly extroverted. Whether it's your church, whether it's your, um, your workplace, going to school. A, a lot of times we demand extroversion, right? We demand people to interact. In fact, school teachers in in your little, you know, your little meetings with them as a parent, yeah, your child needs to interact more with kids. They don't. They don't talk as much as they need to talk. I get it. I get it. So we we've uh, we found a wonderful article and we wanted to address how I thrived as an introvert in an extroverted work environment. It's uh, here to discuss her article is an extroverted work uh, is Anne, is Anne Davis and Anne um, wrote the the article. She's uh, she's an author. She's the founder of Boost Your Skills, Boost Your Income blog, and she's here to help us understand this topic. Anne, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, I appreciate you so much. I'm happy to be here, Great to have you. Talk about, are you yourself, and are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm actually an introvert, but if you met me today, I don't think you'd know if I'm one or not. Yeah, right. Because you know, society kind of expects us to be all extroverts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we live, in fact, um, in the book Quiet, they talked about the studies that were done at Harvard, even the way that they were bringing people into the Harvard School of Business was basically the whole thing was identifying extroverts. And the reality is... Not every extrovert would be a good business person and not every introvert would be a good business person. We need to find a way to to, to deal with both people, which is what your article addresses. Talk to us about what uh, what are some ways, if you are an introvert, you know, what are the, some of the things that you face as you go into the workplace? Well, most of the things that introverts face is because they 
two things the parents require them to do. Like uh, when they graduate from high school, they go to careers which they really don't care for, but because the family pressure or the society and different types of jobs, they go into those choices. Well, what happens is when they graduate and they go to work, it becomes very demanding for them. And at the end of the day, they feel like they've been just in a marathon or some kind of work that isn't really for them and they hate the job. It's not a job that's bad. It's the environment or how they are expecting to perform. So the most important thing is they identify what they should be, they can do. And whichever job they're in, they should be able to set boundaries, be able to accept who they are and say, well, I'm an introvert and this is how I'm going to do it. Yeah. You don't have to hang out with people, you know, all the time. You can have your me time set aside. Two minutes, five minutes is enough. Don't be ashamed to walk out of a meeting and go to the restroom for those two minutes and go back to wherever you're doing. It's because they try to fit in and that makes them exhausted at the head of the day. Yeah, you, you, it seems like as an introvert, it would be easier for you to just maybe disconnect. And, um, but, but what I'm seeing and I've seen in my own life and I see in your article being reinforced is you need to go out and, and kind of grab the opportunities. You need to be saying, this is the, like, you know, when they're, when they're assigning work or they're, they're doing certain things, there might be time that you need to go have your breaks, but there's other times you can go grab an activity, you can go grab a, um, a you know, a, a responsibility that they need done, and you can still go take advantage of it and do it your way. You can find a way to do it on your time frame in your way. Isn't that right? Oh, that's true. Let's say, you know, you have, I uh, remember when I was a teacher, we used to have many activities, after-school activities. I would have been crazy to go for dancing activities, you know? So I always made sure I grabbed the ones I knew. I'll still be content and I'll be happy and I'll help the kids. And those were things like the painting, the drawing, and the writing. Mm. The with the introverts. Why you need to volunteer or do work that suits your needs? Because mm-hmm. You need to know yourself. It's it sounds like Go ahead, Anne. I mean, you go for things that make you feel awkward, then yeah. you're just gonna hate your job. And oh, yeah. people feel like what's going on there. So always try to grab you know, grab things that always benefit you. That's I guess the point too, is you've you've gotta know you. You've gotta know yourself, you've gotta know what you are into what works for you. Otherwise, you could get sucked into thinking. I remember thinking, I, I, I need to be a salesman because the salesman um, is the one that makes all the money or whatever. But then I went and tried sales and I didn't like it. Um, and there were certain things that I knew I was good at and I knew how I needed to do them and it, and it worked really well for me. But you do need to know yourself. Another thing you bring up in your article is the importance of scheduling your needs and, and finding a routine and sticking to your routine. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, let's say, I mean, one thing I've realized, the mornings are my time to just, if I wake up to a 
noisy environment. My entire this room. I like the quiet time, you know, get out of bed. Well, it's five minutes. You know, kids are in bed. Make sure you wake up a little earlier than they do. And that quiet time of five minutes will give you the energy to be able to deal with things most of the morning. And I realize when you're when you wake up to a chaotic or noisy environment, your day is just gonna be entirely noisy because your job may not give you that chance of being quiet. So always make sure you have that me time. You either wake up early or you plan it before you go to bed. But mine always wakes up when I wake up early. Or sometimes I'll take naps too. Naps works for me. Yeah. It used to work when I when I was in a school teaching, I'll get home, take a nap before I go out to do other things. You know, I, I think that's like that. The anticipation, the planning, the preparation, it puts so much more of it in our own hands. It, it lets us have this feeling like Man, I think I, I can actually prepare more. And if I've prepared more, if I'm more, uh, if I'm more ready to handle the day instead of jumping into it, it feels like I can handle all of the kind of extroverted things that are thrown at me. Um, as we wrap up, one of the points that you make at the end of your article is you have to work with what you have to make yourself thrive. And I mean, I guess the hard part is not to get discouraged being an introvert living in an extroverted world. That's true. You know, you're who you are. You can't really change. You know, being an introvert is not something that you go grab there off the shelf and get, you know, it's not like something some people can get and others can't. It's who you are. And you have to accept it. You have to live it with it. And you have to make it happen. Yeah. You don't have to be afraid to go for those jobs that will benefit your life. But the most important thing is you admit you are an introvert and accept it. And slowly you become, you know, the winner that you want to be. But you will survive in an extroverted environment because I believe at this time I would do anything I could to do because I've already accepted myself as an introvert and I know my limits. And other people I talk to, they seem to be afraid to to be known to be introverts. You know, they feel like it's kind of a neonate. Yeah, yeah. You say, oh, something is wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. You're all full. You're complete. You just need to understand, accept yourself, and go for what you want. Beautiful. And Davis, appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and your insight on extroversion and introversion. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. You bet. We will take a break, folks. And uh, when we come back, we'll be doing a little Coach's Corner and talking more about uh, the, you know, the, the battle all of us face with kind of integrating and, and, and being a part of a world where sometimes you don't feel like you're an insider. You feel like you're the outsider and how we might be able to step into that space a little more comfortably. Stick with us. We'll be right back, helping you see the good in the world. And remember, you're part of that good. We'll be back. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. 
to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as I was watching the Democratic Convention um, and the Republican Convention, I, I sit and I think there's just a lot of people in the world that feel like they don't fit in, you know? And as we were talking a minute ago about introversion versus extroversion, we struggle. I think I think it's a human issue that we, a lot of us we just feel like we this we're not in our natural state. Personally, I have beliefs about that. Uh, part of it, I believe, is that who we are on this earth is not who we were before or who what we can become, and so we're we're kind of like fish out of water. And as we are struggling and trying to deal with this body we picked up, um, you know, I, I picked up a body. My spirit became came into this body, and now I'm trying to make my body work for me. Except there's parts of me that are, you know, maybe more introverted. There's parts of me that uh, that have a harder time, you know, because I'm a high sensitive. So things distract me: smells, light. Heat, all these things start to irritate me like, oh, my word, is anybody going to fix the temperature in here? Is that who I am? Well, no, it's not. But if I all of a sudden end up pulling away from life because sitting in this classroom is so hot, then all of a sudden I'm the one that suffers. And if I suffer and everyone and I don't fit in, um, then it starts to change the world. What do you do when you're a, a young – when you're a child, a six-year-old, and you don't feel like you fit into the classroom because you don't do math very well? When everyone else in the class can do the math incredibly well and you don't. I remember uh, flashcards. Um, did you ever do this? Flashcards in elementary school, the times tables. And she, the, our teacher would hold it up, uh, hold up the times table. She'd have us in two lines – Four times four, and whoever could say it the fastest, 16. Right, stay in line. The one that missed it, losers, go over to the wall. And I remember thinking, I knew the answer. I couldn't get it out of me fast enough. I couldn't get the answer out of me fast enough. And kids could get it out faster. So right then I started thinking, I'm not good at math. I'm not a math kid. Townsends don't do math. We're, we're not math people. And what, notice what happens to us. Because of maybe some of our inclinations, because of some of our tendencies, because of our issues as children, as um, just as anybody, we struggle. And when we struggle, we sometimes figure out or, or make up a story that that must be who we are. I then realized after going to a school that didn't do times table drills in two lines with tons of pressure – but instead let you just do math in your head. I went to a school where they wouldn't let you count on your fingers and they wouldn't let you um, write down like carryover numbers in your math. I had to do it in my head, but they gave you time. And when they gave me the time, I started to thrive in math and I loved math. But when I was put under pressure or made to jump like a monkey in the math class, I realize that, you know what, that's not how I learn. We've got to be careful what we throw on people. And just because somebody isn't performing the way you expect them to perform, don't assume they don't get it and don't assume they're clueless. You might want to assume they just do it a different way, which is why our conversation about introversion and extroversion with Ann Davis was so important. 
I have a radio show and I have I do work on TV and I teach workshops and I'm a speaker and yet I consider myself an introvert. Isn't that weird? It doesn't mean I'm good at any of it. It just means that's how I make my living. But I'm an introvert. And if I can sit and write and turn on some good music and write, I can fly. Interestingly, the way I write, though, is how I speak. And that doesn't make for great, you know, great forming of sentences. It doesn't make for perfect punctuation. But many times it might be engaging. Why I bring it up about me is I'm about as average as they come. So I am you. And if you are at your work and you're sitting there thinking, oh, my word, I can't do this job. I can't do it. (sighs) What am I supposed to do? Whatever you do, don't run away and hide. There is nothing that's going to benefit you or this world if you shrink. Right? Don't shrink away from what you're supposed to bring to this world. So whether it's the fact that you know, you're know you different than someone else, maybe it's your color, your ethnicity, your gender, your history. Maybe it's problems you've had in the past. Maybe it's something more about you know your, your upbringing. Maybe you feel different just because of you know, your ability to sit still. Whatever it is about you, it doesn't mean you're wrong, it, and, and it doesn't mean you're not normal. What's normal in this world? What's normal when everything is seemingly so extreme? We, the people we hold up as some of the greatest examples in the world are so extreme. Look at your presidential candidates. Look at our athletes. Our athletes we hold up as incredible, but when you look at them, physiologically, they're just extreme. They're variants. They're... They're anomalies. You know, LeBron James is an anomaly physiologically. His body is outrageous. I know, I just want to be like, I want to be like LeBron. But LeBron's, it's an oddity. I know. The perfect bone structure is a weird freak of nature. The perfect hips don't exist except in airbrushing and, you know, doctor's offices. So be careful how you – the stories you make up about yourself. Even saying you're an extrovert or an introvert, if you're not careful, could uh, brand you as something that you're really not. Don't also brand brand yourself as a negative. Well, I don't know what I am, but I know I'm not this. It's so easy again, and we talk about it all the time on the show. We tend to as humans go to the negative side of what we're not. It's more of what we understand about ourselves. Problem is, I may not be awesome at math, but I'm pretty good at math. I can do math. Just don't make me do math and give you a split-second answer. So my problem may not be math. It may be speed. The problem with speed inherently is accuracy tends to drop. So I'm a guy, I guess, that would prefer some accuracy over speed. Make sense? We need to find ways to uh, to be our best self and not to shrink because when it comes down to it, um, I also feel strongly that if if we um, if I don't offer it, like I see all of the time, um, somebody struggles. Somebody came to me yesterday, a couple, and the husband's struggling, and the wife doesn't know what to do. He's got addictions. He's got all of these other problems, and it's easy for them to just kind of shrink away and hide from their church group that they're in. 
They just want to hide because the the problems this guy has seem are, are embarrassing for him. They make him feel like he's not part of the part of the team, part of the you know Christian world. But the, my fear is if he shrinks away from it and hides away, then he doesn't get the support of the the church family, but he also doesn't get to teach the lessons to the rest of the church members. The church members need to see that people suffer, and we need to not see them go away to suffer. We need to say, have them stay with us and suffer with us and let us suffer with you. And together we can figure out what this all means. When you shrink away, you not only harm yourself because you don't allow the rest of us to help you, but you also, when you shrink away, you don't, you don't apparently want us to also learn the lessons we need to learn from your pain, from your suffering. And that's what happens when we start, you know, kicking people out and building situations in our lives where we try to push the bad people away from our life instead of trying to open up a circle where we can invite them in. You don't have to invite them in to hurt you, but let them in to learn. Let them in to understand the differences. Does that make sense? If you're an extrovert, try to understand the introvert in your life. Last night, my wife texted me. I had, I had literally had four hours of sleep the night before, and I was so exhausted at 6.30. And she texted me. She says, we have a funeral to go to, a viewing, and, um, and a wedding to go to. Which one should we go to? Now, my wife's a complete introvert or extrovert. Um, and I said in my head, I'm like, well, how about none of them? That's kind of my bad natural man. But the other half of me said, okay, well, I don't know. Which one do we choose? And she said, why don't we go to both of them, which is what you'd expect an extrovert to say. <laughs> why don't we go to both of them? And I just had to trust that the extrovert was right, and she was right. And when we went, I wanted to go into my little shell, but instead I just realized, just stay out, just stay out, and just love the person you're with. Just love them, get into them, pay attention to them. I did it through the wedding or the, yeah, the wedding reception and I did it through the funeral uh, viewing and it was a beautiful night and I was fulfilled and magnified and I was able to serve and give. But it was because my wife can trust my introversion enough and I can trust her extroversion enough and both of us were willing to bend a little bit. You have to be willing to bend. If we're going to make these things work, we have to understand each other and be willing to allow the difference to, to help us. Sometimes what my difference helps my wife to not have to do everything but do important things. And sometimes her difference allows me to be where I need to be so I can magnify my purpose, my calling on earth, right? So don't, don't shrink. Um, don't you dare shrink. There's a great quote that says, don't you dare shrink yourself for someone else's comfort. Do, do not become small for people who refuse to grow. Don't shrink because others are influencing you to shrink. Don't shrink because others aren't able to understand you or be mature enough to value you or appreciate you. Each and every one of us has something to offer. And um, we can't allow we can't allow any of us to shrink away because we think by them shrinking, we get rid of the problem, but we don't. We also lose our ability to handle the difference. Crazy stuff, huh? Little Coach's Corner for you. We will take a break when we come back. 
one of our great producers, Leanna Tan, will be um, joining us. We've got a great little piece she put together about etiquette and the history of etiquette. You're not going to want to miss it. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and become the best you can become in the world. We'll be right back. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, before going out, your mom probably taught you to remember your manners. She'd tell you, you know, don't, don't keep your, you know, keep your elbows off the uh, table, folks, and shake hands. Make sure you shake their hands. Look them in the eye when you shake their hand. Who decided that these odd habits were polite? Our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to enlighten us a little on what she found out about the history of American etiquette. friend one time asked me what would I do if I saw an angel coming down from heaven and I said sneeze well I just imagine this super bright light falling from the sky and when I see bright lights I sneeze and then I thought wouldn't it be cool to have an actual angel say bless you well I guess that would only happen if it were like a European angel though because not everyone actually says bless you yeah I lived in Japan for a little while, and I noticed that after I sneezed, no one said anything. It was silent. In fact, they just pretended like nothing even happened. But they're all about manners and etiquette in Japan, so I wanted to learn the phrase for bless you so that I could be polite. And then somebody told me, they don't say that. And I was like, what? I had never even considered that because you just grow up and it's like you sneeze and someone says bless you. It's almost like innate now. But after I learned that, I thought, why? Why do we say that? Why do people need to be blessed? And who came up with that? Who decided that that was the polite thing to do? So then I looked on mentalfloss.com and I read this article called The Amazing Origins of 15 Etiquette Rules. And it says that the practice of saying bless you goes back to 590 CE when Pope Gregory I commanded that anyone who sneezed immediately be blessed because they thought that it was a sign that they had contracted the plague. I just thought I was really lucky to be getting blessed like five times more than everyone else every time I walked out in the bright sun or someone turned on a light. But then I thought if they were blessing people because they contracted the plague, why don't we say bless you after people cough? (coughs) Who really made up all these unwritten rules? Where did all of our manners and etiquette come from? I just chose a few of these to share with you to enlighten you on our etiquette culture. Number two, giving a lady the interior of a sidewalk. Apparently, men gave women the interior of the sidewalk to save her from the perilous road so as not to subject her to splashes or runaway carriages. I didn't know this was a thing. I just always thought they were trying to give me, like, the elevated part of the sidewalk so our height differences weren't so noticeable. But knowing that they were actually sacrificing their lives to save me from oncoming traffic... I think I might have some reconsidering to do. Number three, showering a bride with gifts. Way back when, if a father didn't approve of the man his daughter wanted to marry, she wouldn't have a dowry. So her friends would all get together and shower her with gifts so she would have something to offer the groom and their marriage could move forward. Oh man, having guilty flashbacks of all those bridal showers I didn't go to. 
What if I prevented my friends from matrimonial bliss because I didn't add my chopstick set or hand-painted mugs to the pile? Well, I know what this means. I just need a few hundred more friend donations so I can marry James Marsden. Number four, touching glasses for toast. I guess the gesture is a subtler form of spilling a little of your beverage into your neighbor's glass, a practice that was developed as a sign of faith. If you were trying to poison your dinner companion, you too would be poisoned. Note, this is also how you transfer mono. In the Middle Ages, alcohol was thought to contain literal spirits that made those who partook behave outrageously. Bells or clinking glasses was thought to drive away these evil spirits. Devil child! Devil child! Well, I wonder how long it took them to realize that clinking glasses wasn't helping anything or saving them from massive hangovers. <laughs> okay, I had to include this next one. Number five, not wearing white after Labor Day. High society, wealthy women in the 1800s established a series of arbitrary fashion dictates to weed out the new money from the old money, and avoiding white in the winter was just one of these. Okay, that is ridiculous. I didn't know that was considered polite. How is this part of etiquette? Excuse me, I didn't know I was offending anyone with my ski vest. <gasps> I can't even breathe. I'm so offended. I always just thought it was because it was a safety hazard to be wearing white and cross the street in the middle of a snowstorm. <laughs> Okay, well, I think I got it. Next time I'm at a family dinner, I'll be sure to head over there on the interior of the sidewalk, dressed in all black, turn off all the lights so I don't sneeze, and then just start clinking everything around me to save my family from all the evil spirits in my siblings. Then I will become so polite that people will flock to me. But I will only befriend those who are rich enough to contribute to my dowry. Then I'll have everything I need to become the next Mrs. Marsden. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. Bless you. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Uh, as we talk about depression or anxiety or I guess really any mental health issue, um, there is power in knowing your own know, – knowing yourself, right? And and getting a better insight into who you are. Many times when people will come see me, I'll just casually ask, uh, you know, do you think you're depressed? And a lot of times they'll say, oh, yeah. Yeah, I am. And then I ask, have you done anything about it? Have you sought counseling? Have you Have you talked to a doctor about it? Most of the times, no, no. Um, why? And it makes sense though, right? Because we we don't want to do these changes. We don't want to be pegged as broken. We don't want to uh, rely on someone else to help us. We think we're going to be able to dig ourselves out of it. One of the problems with depression though is sometimes – you're already behind, and it might just be chemically. It might be just situationally. Your brain is just behind in, in its ability to make the right decisions in the right timing, in the right way, in the right space. So sometimes it might help to just have an external intervention, and that intervention might be um, some antidepressants for a while, or it might be uh, some cognitive therapy um, and talk therapy for a while. Whatever it is, uh, getting a little boost, a little help, 
is going to help one way or another because it's going to give you a chance to shift how you think about it, how you feel about it. But don't wait. We we um, especially if you've seen the pattern over and over and over. One of the best ways I've ever found to know if you need help is if it's starting to seriously impact your life, if it impacts your interaction with your children and your family, if you're starting to medicate, um, if you're starting to pull yourself away from everyone else, or if you're having aggressive outbursts, right? So if all of these things are starting to happen and it's impacting your life more overtly, more obviously, then it's time to do something. And the sooner you can do it, the better. Um, and I guess what I would do is just seek out somebody you know. And the other reason I would do it is because if you can have this happen to you, it's very likely your children could have it happen to them. And our kids need to see that we are doing what we can with our own mental health issues so that we can hand down these lessons, these learnings, these teachings to the next generation so they can handle their DNA. They can handle their genetics. We hand these traditions down, uh, whether it's a chemical tradition, whether it's a psychological tradition, whether it's abuse, we hand these down to the next generation. So the more we take on learning how to handle it and fix it, the better off we all are. It might very well be the greatest gift you can hand your children is a playbook, a tools book, a tool set for how to manage your mental health issues. Uh, We'll wrap it up with a quote from Thomas Edison, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Giving up on the issue and not trying to solve it, not trying to ever deal with it, not trying to talk about it makes total sense, right, when you're depressed. The problem is it doesn't make any progress. And all we need is a little bit of progress today on it, a little bit more understanding, a little bit uh, of, of solutions that work, and we can eventually build a way, a, a literally, literally a ladder out of our depression or our mental health issues. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Everybody would like to motivate, move, influence, somehow influence another person, wouldn't you? And you want to. I mean, you need to. These are your kids. These are the people you love. These are the people that uh, you've been given a responsibility or a stewardship over, like your family, how powerful would it be if you could effectively just move them? Not to – I mean, I, I can get anybody to move if I make enough noise, right? I can scare you. I can intimidate you. I can, I can do so many things to get you to do what I want you to do. The problem with, with it is I also have to learn to motivate you in a way – today that I can still motivate you tomorrow. And the problem with some of our methods of motivating another human being is we do it at the we, – we actually do it and rob from tomorrow. Um, for example, if I use force and fear and coercion to, to motivate my children, I mean, I guess it works, but eventually my kids will be bigger than me. <laughs> They'll be stronger than me, they will be taller than me, and my influence will evaporate. My power will be gone because they won't respect me, they won't honor me as a parent, they just won't be there for me. So ask yourself about how you choose to motivate, how you choose to inspire or influence your family or your friends, your neighbors. Are you doing it in a way that actually is additive that, that makes it so it's easier to be more powerful tomorrow and even more powerful the next day because how you choose to influence them in every moment starts to create uh, more power down the road. 
the the best way to do that would probably be right to be to be um, to be more principled in how you try to influence. A couple rules I give, though, if we if you want to quietly motivate others, first rule is a very basic rule: you must first be influenced by them before walking in thinking you know what someone needs. Wouldn't it make more sense to find out? What they need. One of the the things I do a lot when I do public speaking um, or just you know events or whatever, I always like to open it up to whatever the topic is. If we're talking about relationships, I would just to the group say what makes relationships so difficult, and by just opening it up, you'll start to have hands go up. And as you start taking hands and start hearing what they're saying, I've noticed that many times just what they say, and sometimes I'll write it down on a board, sometimes I'll just go with what we're talking about, but I start to actually have my entire speech written for me. Okay, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about this. But be influenced. And the more open you are to being influenced by somebody, they then start to trust you, right? They start to actually uh, they start to engage you more because you are you're actually willing to get into them first before just like laying down the law. Another rule is simply um, when you're listening to them and open to what they're doing, listen for what they're excited about. Listen for what passion they are bringing to the equation. One of the most powerful ways I found to motivate somebody is to allow them to just kind of be what they like to be. Let them go where they want to go with their uh, with their sports, with their athletics, with their extracurricular. Many times as parents, we just want our kids to be a football player because we were a football player. But they come out and they, they're an artist and they want to be artistic and they really are into drawing. And uh, but you're like drawing isn't football and you really got to study and I don't know. Can you just allow people to be what they want to be? And you'll find that out when you listen to them. Um, Another uh, powerful way to influence, I think, people is to give them role models of of people that that they might kind of naturally lean toward, people they might be interested in, and let those role models uh, kind of be their guide. Find If somebody really loves basketball, for example, go find them a prototype. Go find them somebody that you know came from circumstances like you're coming from and help them find a role model. Help them find uh, even an NBA star that is similar to them, came from a similar background. Go learn their story. Go find out how they made it pro. Go find out about their work ethic and let kind of a prototype um, be there for them. Something that can show them that they can do this too. Sometimes the most motivating thing that can get anybody out of a, a hole is simply to know that someone else has done it. And you, you can be very powerful about that. Another thing that's really powerful, a way to influence is be their backer, right? Be the person behind their passion and help them get there. Put your money down to get them to art classes, drive them to art classes, talk about their art, show their art, give their art away, brag about their art, do whatever you can to highlight what they really do like, what they really are passionate about. Just some basic ideas, right, to influence another person and and to motivate them, especially as we see more and more of our children. We wonder, are they motivated at all? Is Are they doing anything in there? They don't seem to move off the couch anymore, but they will. If you'll dig into them, understand them, find what they're good at, find what they like, and then partner with them. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Compared to the scientific model, there really are a lot of people that question science. And, I mean, science has let us down a few times, right? I mean, 
some past wrong science includes dinosaurs died from a volcano. Uh, there's a lot of genetic differences between the races. Tobacco is good for you. There are only nine planets. There's only one solar system. And water only exists on the Earth. There's some theories that have been uh, disproven. And yet um, we we so need science. And we also, I think, need other other intuitive theories where we use our intuition to better understand something that science maybe can't explain to you. Um, Other issues like faith and and an issue of hope and finding hope or just what creates a miracle um, in your eyes. Does everything have to be explained by science? Also, I've just noticed how sometimes science can let you down. I have someone close to me who has who's had uh, back pain, went in, got some shots in their back, and they just didn't work. And they were in a lot of pain. And they actually believed, based on what doctors were telling them, that, yeah, their their back's going to be messed up forever and they're probably going to degenerate and then they're just going to be in a wheelchair and slowly their life is just going to disintegrate. And then they showed those exact same images to another doctor and another do- – actually, two other doctors and two other doctors are like, what? No. No, I mean, that's normal. You're You're normal. That's normal degeneration for your age. So, yeah, the shots just weren't working. What kind of shot was it? What did they do? Where did they put the shot? Oh, no, you need this kind of shot. And then that little information from another scientist helped that patient go clarify for their doctor what else could be going on. And then that person went in and had the shot where they needed the shot, and it worked like a charm. Ah, science. Isn't it great? But science impacts our head. It impacts our minds. It impacts our belief system, which is why at some point we might want to trust some of our intuition at times. We might want to trust some of our inspiration. When we get light or a a thought in our mind, how many times have you ever gotten up in the morning? I had this happen to me the other day. I just wake up and there's this thought in my mind. And then I go research that thought and bada boom, bada bing, I've got an answer to an issue or a riddle that I've been battling with for months. I've got answers. And I believe there are answers out there for everybody. But you have to be willing to look more than just, you know, at your phone and more than just what you were taught once. Dig deeper. How many times has somebody just eliminated a theory or, you know, a religious belief simply because they uh, they just don't believe it, but they haven't studied it, they haven't evaluated it, they haven't worked on it, they haven't prayed about it, but they're going to eliminate the idea. And, by the way, feel incredibly confident in eliminating it. One of my rules is if you have incredible confidence to the point of arrogance— about an idea, you probably don't have the right idea. <laughs> because th- what I have found, the ideas that, to me that I, I have received and know most boldly and strongly don't make me more arrogant. They actually make me more humble. When you know truth, it humbles you. It's not something that should make you arrogant. Arrogance sets sets you up for the fall, right? Pride will set you up for the fall. So a little coach's corner for you. Just 
helping you see that there's other thoughts out there and there's other thoughts inside of you that are coming from, I believe, a different source, a higher source, a better source, a more accurate source, a source maybe that's more aligned to you and what you need to bring to this world. And man, if all of us could connect into that source, woo, look out, we could create something powerful. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, leadership over the last several decades has been about creating a vision and strategy that others can see and follow. Many organizations have made dramatic improvements in office working conditions, but a disconnect still remains. Robin Camerote, a communication strategy consultant, is online with us this morning to talk a little bit more about how businesses can win over their employees' loyalty and keep the most talented workers in the workplace. Uh, uh, Robin Camero, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Matt. It's good to be here. Great to have you on board and have you teaching us about um, loyalty. It's it's an interesting thing. It, is, it, is it a generational thing? Why? Are we less loyal today than we used to be? Well, I don't think so, but I do think that people have more options. And so, you know, what... Um, you know, used to be about kind of a, a relationship with your direct manager and kind of the team that you're working with has really expanded. And, and, and maybe there are some generational um, aspects to this, but I think people are looking for something more out of their work and, and looking for, for purpose and kind of a, um, you know, a sense of intention when they go to work. And so I, I do think that's changed in, you know, the last, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years. And that's got to be expensive, right? Replacing an employee, it seems like it would be much easier to just keep them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, the data shows that I think that it costs, um, you know, almost twice the salary um, over over time to replace um, an employee. So, you know, employers and big companies are much better off to keep their uh, to, to keep their talent happy and to keep them engaged and uh, and, you know, and prevent that kind of turn, you know, prevent the kind of turnover that happens just because people are um, dissatisfied with, you know, with their work. And there are so many kind of avoidable problems that, you know, companies could address to really reduce that turnover. Talk to us about those. What, what are some of the things that drive employees away? Well, you know, I, I think in my experience, it's really kind of the lack of flexibility and autonomy in your work. You know, so when you go to work and you really don't have much say in the tasks that you're doing or the priority order or who you're doing them with, you know, over time, I think that really begins to wear on you. And, and you know, as professionals, especially as you kind of grow and advance in your career, you want to have more say. And I think that some employers kind of get into a mindset that, you know, this ownership mindset that the staff is there and they, they own them. And, and that's really problematic because, uh, because of course, we, you know, there's no such thing as indentured servitude anymore. We don't own our employees. And any efforts that you can make to kind of um, build up that autonomy and flexibility in your employees' day um, makes them all the happier. It's so true. Yeah, darn it. So, we, in, so let me get that straight. Indentured servitude gone. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. Blasted. Yes. Yeah, and I heard you joking with Matt before. Yeah. Excuse me, with Ben before. Ben. And yeah, so. yeah, you know what? We've been. I, I'm sad that he's hearing this now because he's about to leave us, and now we now we kind of know why because <laughs> we've treated him like a servant. Talk to us um, uh, about this 
you brought up these freedoms, right? Like life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. This freedom matters a lot. I know they've talked about it with millennials that maybe having a good life is is more important than having a, a really wealthy life. Yeah, you know, and I think there's balance. And, and one of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, that, you know, millennials are often cited as the generation that's kind of leading the charge in terms of having purpose-driven work. Um, but the reality is that's what we all want. I'm a Gen Xer myself, and, and that's certainly what I want out of my work. And I know a lot of other um, you know, people from older generations, and that's what they want, too. So we can thank the millennials for kind of bringing this issue to the forefront, but it is something that we're all interested in. It's like a human need, uh, right? They, all yeah. humans would want it. It's just maybe many of us didn't think we could ask for it. Yeah, I think so. You know, and, um, you know, certainly there is something to be said for job security. I mean, to, you know, for all of the responsibilities that we have and being able to, um, you know, kind of meet those obligations and those responsibilities with certainty. I mean, that is really important. But one thing I see is that, you know, we've been in this down economy for, you know, several years now. And some employers kind of get into this mindset where they know people don't want to leave or they they fear leaving or looking for other work because they're afraid that there won't be something else out there. And in some cases, employers really exploit that that down economy and, and kind of get into these patterns of not you know, not treating employee, you know, employees very well. And it, and it gets to the problem because as soon as that, it, you know, as soon as um, employees have other options, if you're working in that kind of environment, they will take them and they will leave. Right. And so I think that it makes so much sense now for, um, for all employers to just, you know, really treat people, um, you know, with respect. And anytime there's an opportunity to kind of give them some of that um, ability to make decisions about their day and what they're working on and, and um, to, to um, allow that to happen. It's it's a weird idea that even if I could oppress you and make you afraid and that would get you to stay, it still wouldn't mean you'd be as valuable for me as somebody that isn't oppressed and isn't afraid and is engaged like you're talking about. I, so it's it's almost like we have to decide the means we want to we want to use to get people to stay with us either empower them and and excite them and energize them and let them be passionate about what they want to do in the business with us or intimidate them scare them you know it's we have a choice yeah yeah we do and you know i'm working with a client right now who um she is a couple years into her career and she kind of was looking around the company for what was next and um, identified what seemed to be a great opportunity, something that was really going to stretch her skills and be good for her and uh, and allow her to kind of stay with the company. And so when she approached her um, supervisor about getting his support to, to make the move, he turned her down. And she, of course, was incredibly disappointed. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways it doesn't surprise me. She's very talented and a incredibly hard worker. And so, it, you know, it struck me like I could I kind of understand where the supervisor is coming from. Obviously, you don't want to lose, you know, your best employee to have them go work for another manager. But it also seemed to me to be incredibly short-sighted because what's going to happen is, you know, so she's, she's complied, you know, she's still in her same job. But I can guarantee the next time a good opportunity comes along, she's going to leave. And it's right. probably not going to be an internal move. It's probably going to be an external move because she's so frustrated. Oh, it's so true. And uh, in a day and age where technology is there, you have the tools, you have abilities to to actually create jobs that maybe are more meaningful and more aligned to how we live and want to live. This is the day, I guess, as a manager, you need to start opening up your own mind and, and, and allowing certain things to at least be tried. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, and I think what's true uh, – 
for managers and kind of how they, in, you know, interact with their employees is this, you know, has to be true for them as well. So, you know, I hope that um, managers out there are kind of getting ideas of things that inspire them and things that they can in turn talk to their their leadership and their managers about so that it's a cycle. And, and you know, for that reason, I think that it really kind of starts at the top and the most, you know, CEO, the most senior leadership can really set the tone um, for kind of their immediate circle and then it kind of flows, flows from there. What would you suggest for the bosses um, to kind of get this discussion going and this openness out there? I mean, I can almost see that they're afraid to suggest or allow certain things. If I allow it with one person because it, I trust that person, I work with that person, I, I feel obligated to have to do it for the next person even if I don't have the same level of trust. Yeah, I think that's that's a real problem, and I you know and I you know I kind of can um, can sympathize with managers there because all employees are different and have kind of different capabilities, and um, I think that it starts with setting um, setting expectations for all employees and building kind of a reputation as a manager that holds everybody accountable to to those expectations. So you kind of have to start there, but if you want to kind of take this to the next level and kind of figure out what. Um, you know, what individual employees, what new tasks they can take on or new opportunities. I think that it starts with a, you know, a conversation with everybody that says, you know, hey, you know, I'm really really interested in seeing what more we can do together for our common goal. It always has to be grounded in something that's ultimately good for the business. It can't, it can't be just, you know, something whimsical that an employee wants to do. It really has to be grounded in, in something that makes sense for the mission and or for the business. Yeah. And, and win-win. So it's, it's good for both of us. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. if one is losing, right, it's it probably won't work long term. Right. It's just un- unsustainable. So, you know, so I, I would, you know, in um in a meeting and maybe it starts with a small group and then kind of expands out from there. But in a meeting, just, you know, opening up and saying, hey, I'm very much open to new ideas. Let's, you know, if you have things that you think are going to make our process work better or, you know, we're going to reach more customers or whatever we're going to do, um, bring them to me and let's figure out how we can make them work. And so, um it doesn't mean so then you know ideas will start you know you know coming in it doesn't mean that you have to accept everything as a manager um i think the obligation is to listen and try to understand kind of what people want to do um you know picking a couple that you think are workable and that you can support as a manager and what really gets people excited is when you can follow through and add some resources to it so either um you know freeing up some of the employees time to focus on it or even giving some them some investment money to uh, to pursue it that's a, yeah, that's huge, right? Because I guess it increases the likelihood it's actually going to happen now. Now it's legit. Right, right, right. One of the things you mentioned in your article is about um, kind of a leadership issue that you, you might need to circle your leaders, those you know in the top positions, and make sure that they lose the superiority trap and become more inclusive. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think that um – you know, as people ascend in an organization, we we tend to kind of gravitate towards our peer group, you know, or and in some cases kind of are trained to manage up and keep our bosses happy. And I think over time what happens is that there's these kind of echelons and, and the most senior group can, ad- you know, adopt this kind of attitude that it's us versus them within the organization. And to me, this is just a, a huge um, red flag because um, then the the, the problem is then that the senior leadership is really disconnected from the experience that employees are having kind of maybe day to day, either with clients and customers or with each other. And it, 
it makes them as you know not in as good of a position to kind of make decisions and, and run the business as well. So there's a real practical business problem when that happens. Um, but it's also just you know not not the best way to kind of interact with with people. And so I think that really um, keeping you know leaders can hold each other accountable and hold themselves accountable to saying you know every time that we want to kind of close the door, have a conversation, make a decision without including the employees that this is going to impact. We need to rethink that and find ways to include people, whether it's, you know, having a representative or having more open meetings or or attending more staff meetings or whatever it is, just um, finding ways to interact with staff that really start to break down some of those walls. Yeah. And it seems like making it almost flatter. So so it's yeah more of a team atmosphere. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that that's ultimately more productive. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break. We're speaking with uh, Robin Camerote, who uh, is the author of of this article, The Simple Strategy to Keeping Your Most Talented Employees from Quitting, which is featured in Inc. Magazine. We'll take a break. Again, you can go check out Robin's website, robincamerote.com, C-A-M-A-R-O-T-E, camerote.com. We'll continue the discussion in just a minute. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you noticing that uh, maybe your leader doesn't know how to keep you interested? Uh, maybe they're not allowing you or not setting up conditions where you can thrive in your organization. Robin Camerote joins us. She is the author of an article that we found in Inc. Magazine, How to Keep Your Most Talented Employees from Quitting. And she's walking us through some of her lessons as a communications coach and a consultant to help us with that. Robin Camero, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Dr. Matt. This is fun and I think necessary. So it's interesting as a as an employee, I how do I get my leader? Do I just send them your article? How do I get the leader <laughs> to start to pick up these ideas if if they're not one who naturally wants to lead in this more open way? Uh, well, that that might be uh, more direct, I think, than a lot of people want to go. But, of course, it depends <laughs> on the relationship that you yeah. have with your boss. So that could be one strategy. Um, I know I think the other thing is that um, as, a, as an employee, you want to get to the place where you have some regular contact with your boss. And I realize this is um, not the case for, for a lot of people. But if you can kind of figure out a way to get on their calendar, whether, you know, it's on a monthly basis or, you know, every other month or something like that, and just get some dedicated time to sit down and talk to them just to bu- start building that relationship because it's a lot easier to have conversations about what you're happy about, what's frustrating, or, you know, other kinds of improvements you want to offer in the office if you're starting from a place where you already have a solid relationship. So I think that's a good place to start. Absolutely. Um, And if you have that set time, you always can do accountability and follow-up, so you you can always show them how well you're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think the thing you don't want to do necessarily is kind of gather a peer group or, you know, some other employees together and kind of gossip or, yeah. um, you know, For, I, I yeah, form a union over a lot of bosses. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> right. that tends not to go over really well. So I think, you know, if you can uh, approach people, you know, in private when, 
when, you know, their defenses are down and really talk about kind of how it's impacting you. And if you can re- always kind of bring it back to how you're either going to help your boss or you're going to help the business by, you know, by doing something, then I think that, you know, most bosses are going to be open to listening to that. It seems like sometimes the mere fact, if you're if you're in a large, really large organization, it's, you know, it's a huge ship. It's like an aircraft carrier and you're just some lowly worker 12 stories down that that wants to try to change this the movement of this ship does bureaucracy tend to then weigh heavy on the ability for for managers to change these systems you know i think that it does in our perception but not in our reality and and what has just become so abundantly clear to me over the last couple of years i i came from a very large organization and sometimes I, I kind of felt empowered to make changes, and a lot of times I didn't. But what's, what's, like, what I, what's really become clear to me is that we all have so much more power and influence than we ever use. And so never underestimate your ability to make change to your immediate environment and then even beyond. And so it all has to start with kind of a, an idea of what you want to fix, so kind of a clear vision for what, you know, what's broken, an idea for how it can be better, and the willingness to um, be part of the solution to actually roll up your sleeves and kind of work on it. And so I think if you start those conversations with, even if it's just, you know, another middle manager that then, you know, it resonates and they can bring it up from there, you know, I, I just, I would encourage everybody, just don't underestimate yourself and and how much change you can have in your in your business. Well, because every manager is a person as well, right? So we we're promoting somebody up the line. It's just uh, we as managers, when we get to those positions, I guess we need to make sure we do become more creative as a manager. Yeah, I, I think so, and it kind of goes back to what you mentioned at the top of the, at the top of the segment. It's just you know. Not only is it the right thing to do, it's incredibly expensive to kind of cycle through employees. And so if you're having a problem with kind of higher than average turnover, I think it's worth looking at, you know, why is that happening? And is there a way that people can be more engaged so that you can um, keep them longer? Give us some examples of how managers that you've worked with were able to, you know, foster this life, liberty, pursuit of happiness mentality with their employees. Well, one kind of a more from my personal experience and kind of growing up uh, professionally in a consulting environment is that the attitude was that every person was kind of the owner of their business within the business. And I think this is a really powerful tool that a lot of organizations can use to kind of foster this sense of ownership. And, um, you know, really um, having people think about their work as not just kind of a, a cog in the wheel, but instead an owner in the business. And so, you know, how they would do that, it would just be, you know, you know, everyone was um, set, set individual goals that kind of rolled up to the broader organization goals were hold, held accountable for those and encouraged and kind of supported in their efforts to kind of grow the business and, um, you know, expand services to clients and that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of ways that um, managers can help foster that sense of ownership. Do you have to pay for the ownership? Like um, <laughs> one of the things I, I can see they do is they want your ideas. They want you to feel like you're an owner but they also sometimes you're kept in your place sometimes you're silenced or you you're not necessarily compensated you go make a really bring a really incredible idea to the game but you're not compensated like everyone else up the line and that's discouraging yeah it it can be um but it's part of you know, it's kind of part of the deal that you accept when you work for these, you know, for for any organization that 
you're going to be part of a team that is kind of building, growing that business. The one thing, um, you know, and, and in turn, you're also shielded from a lot of the risk, right? Right. So, um, so I think employees have to kind of keep that in mind is that you might be a little frustrated that you didn't quite get the bonus that correlated to kind of the work that you brought in or something like that. But also keep in mind that you also, you know, that you, your paycheck was going to continue regardless of what happened there. So there's a, there is uh, some security there. And so keeping that in mind and also just knowing that I, you know, I feel like you can't play the short game. I think that always have to kind of keep in mind that this is, you have a long career and that you're constantly playing to if you're playing to the betterment of the business and, and kind of the overall team, then that's ultimately going to benefit you. And not to get too hung up on kind of the the, the metrics of kind of who, who did what. Right. Well, and especially if you see that in time, you two move. You get opportunities. You have other, you know, movement in your career because of your good work. That it's not – you're not permanently stuck and your – you know, your contributions aren't permanently forgotten. They actually right. float you up. Right, right. Yeah, I, yeah. And I think, yeah, just um, there's no better way to get positive attention from your leadership to, than to, like, bring an idea, be willing to execute it and have it pulled off successfully. You know, even if it's not your name and lines at the end of the day, there's people notice that. Yeah. And kind of being able to do that time and time again is a fantastic way to grow your career. Yeah, you can't beat top performance, right? If you're a right, top performer, right. you'd seem to have the most freedom. I mean, at yeah. least I, I, idealistically, you should. Um, talk about what what do I do as a manager when I need to give feedback, uh, you know, to somebody, uh, maybe to gently to critique what they de- they've done, or to to you know give them the feedback they need without destroying their confidence. Yeah, well, this is this is tricky, and it's one of the managerial skills that I think. Um, that it's so important, especially for kind of new managers that are new to their role. But, you know, I think, you know, there's kind of two types of employee behavior. So there's, there's the kind that is illegal and dangerous and that has to be stopped immediately. Yeah, that's so Ben. You know, okay, one. we got that. Yeah. <laughs> totally <laughs> Ben. <bad>. Yeah. <laughs> so, but there's the other kind that, you know, somebody's falling short of expectations in some way. And that's usually, that's more often the case. So I think that it, it's, there's a couple of things to keep in mind is one, two, um, you always have to start from a, from asking the question, you know, so sitting people down again in private, kind of asking a little bit just to have, you know, understand their point of view and their context, because you likely don't have all of the information as a manager. So, so getting their point of view first. I think the second part then is going slow. So kind of walking through what the expectations were, what the problematic behavior was, or what that impact was, and being as specific as you possibly can, because people really need details. And the reason I um, advise people to kind of go slow in this process is that you have a range of employees that some will catch on in a second. You know, all they need to do is sit down in your office one time and they're like, oh my goodness, like I never want this to happen again. I'm on board. You have other employees that you can imagine having the conversation with 10 different times and they're still going to be struggling to understand. So you have to go slow. And as soon as you notice that somebody has kind of picked up on your message, you stop. Because the I think the problem that most new managers fall into is that they treat feedback universally across the board. They do it the same for every employee. Yeah. And what happens is then you're either too light on some people or you're way too heavy handed on other people. And either way, you're not being very effective. And you can tell if you just open your eyes and, and, and engage them in the conversation, you, you should be able to see if you're coming off too heavy or too light. Right. There's yeah. signs, right? I mean, if, if they're like shutting up and closing down, then maybe we've come off too heavy. Right. And to, you know, back up a little bit. And, yeah. you know, and 
and and I think there's always um, there's always some good that you can find and kind of sprinkle into the conversation, reassuring people that you know you're there to support them, and um, you know I think there's a lot of things that can make those feedback conversations actually one of the most powerful moments you have as a manager, and and um, and really actually leave that conversation with more loyalty and having somebody feel more confident, which is what you want. Um, than having them feel kind of uh, put down. Yeah, you take the worst moment they've had in the company where you've got to give feedback and turn it into a kind of a building exercise where you get to restore confidence and hold hold them accountable. Boy, that's you make it through that, you can probably make it through a lot of stuff. Right, right. And, and most of us can think back on, you know, whether they were teachers or coaches or previous managers that we've had in our life, the ones that are most memorable that – that we kind of go to their lessons time and time again, aren't the ones that were always nice or glossed over things. They they were the ones that were holding us accountable and challenging us on our performance and really, um, you know, giving us that message that they had confidence, but there was something that could be done better. I mean, those are the people that are so effective. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Being being able to do that well, I think, is a a tremendous leadership skill. Well, Robin, as we wrap it up, um, what would you say is the one thing? If there's one thing I could do as a manager to make sure that I'm keeping my most talented people from quitting, what would you say that one thing is? Oh, I would talk to them. So, yeah, find any opportunity you can to just kind of sit down, get to know them, get to know what their aspirations are, and then you will just be amazed at how you can open opportunities for them and, and really help build that, that loyalty. Yeah, no, that's great. Great advice. And, you know, it's you started hiring them by talking to them. You may as well keep talking to them through the whole <laughs> process. Uh, Robin Camerote, we appreciate you. Keep up your great work there at RobinCamerote.com. Well, thank you, Dr. Matt. I love the show. You bet. We'll have you back. Continue to pick your brain. Uh, Robin Camerote's her name. You can go find that article also in Inc. Magazine. How to Keep Your Most Talented Employees from Quitting. We'll take a break, come back. When we come back, we'll be talking about whitewashing the silver screen. One of our producers is going to go in-depth and uh, talk a little bit about Hollywood. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, anyone can be a real-life hero. You don't need a cape, super strength, or a sad backstory to help someone in need. But to play a hero on the silver screen, there's one physical characteristic that just might be a, uh, that, that just might give aspiring actors an edge. That characteristic being white. Here to weigh in on this issue is Madeline Dresden, our Life Lesson segment producer. What do Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton, and Emma Stone all have in common? Acting talent, for sure. But physically speaking, they all have blonde hair, fair skin, and light eyes. Basically, they look very, very white. And yet another important thing that they have in common is that they have all been cast to play Asian characters. Emma Stone played Alison Ng, a Hawaiian Chinese woman in the movie Aloha. Scarlett Johansson will play Major Kusanagi in a remake of the Japanese film Ghost in the Shell. And Tilda Swinton is slated to play the Ancient One, a Tibetan man who mentors Doctor Strange. Alison Ng, Major Kusanagi, a Tibetan man. Emma Stone, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton. Yeah, I'm seeing a problem here, and it's called whitewashing, in which white actors are repeatedly cast in roles that rightfully belong to a person of color. 
Studios often defend their whitewashed cast by saying that they need white leads if they want their movies to do well. Recently, Ridley Scott famously said about whitewashing the movie Exodus, "I can't mount a film of this budget and say that my lead actor is Mohammed so and so from such and such. I'm just not going to get it financed." Racist sentiment aside, the sad thing is I actually believe the guy. It probably is more difficult to get funding for a movie that stars a non-white lead, even if the story is literally set in Egypt. But isn't that something that we should try to change? How can we ensure that people of color get to represent themselves in movies instead of being replaced by white actors? First, we need to change some of our misconceptions. Everyone celebrated Leonardo DiCaprio finally getting his Oscar, but he's also been cast in a lot of Oscar-worthy roles, which means that he gets more opportunities to be nominated. Minority actors, generally speaking, are not given that same opportunity. So if it was difficult for Leonardo to get an Oscar, just imagine how hard it is for them. And if you think that this is an issue of talent, meaning people of color just aren't as good at acting and therefore don't deserve to get good roles, then you really need to take off your American blinders and go watch some international films. They will blow you away. Also, Hamilton, anyone? That smash hit musical is taking America by storm, and it's the story of our founding fathers as told by people of color. The cast of Hamilton received an unprecedented 16 Tony nominations and won 11 of those awards. Whitewashing is clearly not an issue of talent or of audience appeal. Clearly, Americans are totally down with a colorful cast and consider them talented enough to give them awards. They just need to be given a shot. Now, to be fair, things are changing. I am seeing that more and more black actors are getting opportunities to shine. I 100% support their cause. But as an Asian American, I have to say that Asian actors are in a fast sinking ship. The fact that black actors are further along on their road to equality than Asians are just goes to show how much of an issue this really is. And I'm talking about roles that are specifically written for Asians. When those are given to white actors, we're no longer talking about talent. George Takei, who plays the beloved character of Sulu in the original Star Trek series, summed it up best when he voiced his outrage over Tilda Swinton being cast as the ancient one. He posted this to Facebook. We can't keep pretending that there isn't something deeper at work here. It is not about political correctness. We're talking about the systematic erasure of Asian faces from film and media, the lack of opportunity, and the invisibility of a whole segment of our society. Instead, Asians are the butt of jokes, or are cast only in certain roles that continue to marginalize us and send signals to society that we are not leading men and women. His powerful tirade resonates deeply with me now. But if I'm very honest, the issue of whitewashing wasn't important to me until a few years ago. I liked seeing white faces on the big screen because it was representative of what I saw every day. But in 2014, everything changed with the release of Disney's Big Hero 6. America adored the lovable, inflatable Baymax, but I was stunned by the protagonist. He was a half Asian character voiced by a half Asian actor, someone just like me. I was struck by how shocked I was and how moved I was to see someone who looked like me and whose family looked like mine doing heroic kick-butt things. And all I could think was, so this is what white people have been experiencing their whole lives, their faces and their experiences, all subscribing to a heroism that looks like it could be theirs. And I understand now why it is so important for all people, maybe even kids especially. To feel like they belong in heroic situations too, surrounded by heroes who look like them and who come from the same places that they came from. Times are changing, and I hope that you'll join with me in making a world where my kids won't have to sift through the entire movie industry just to find a hero that they can finally relate to.
heroes of color shouldn't be an exception. They should be as visible as the 70% of the world's population that is not white. So sign those petitions, celebrate the genius of Hamilton, and ask for more of the same. Because my kids and other kids of color deserve for their shades of heroism to be represented too.